Today we wrap up the Life of David sermon series, start a new sermon series here in two weeks. Uh, but today I'm excited to wrap up David as we've been looking at his life and looking at the things that God did to use him, um, even in the midst of brokenness. One of the things that I love personally is I love history. Anybody like history this morning? Okay, a couple of you. The rest of you are like, no, not my thing, but that's okay. I'll tell you why I love history. I love history because um, they say the reason why we love or should love history is because it keeps us from repeating the mistakes of the past, which is absolutely true. The other thing about history, though, is that it allows us to grab hold of the truths that actually move us into the future. Things that we can hold on to and remember as we face an uncertain future at times, when we face an unsettling future. And it's in those moments when we look back and we see the truths that we then have confidence to move into the future. One of the things that, uh, one of my favorite stories of history uh, is a story, uh, World War II. World War II, 1940, spring of 1940, uh, France is getting overwhelmed by Germany. And Britain even brought over 300,000 troops over to France to try and stop Germany um, and to keep them from moving forward. In spite of those 300,000 troops into France, Germany continued to march and move through the country. So much so that uh, the British and French troops continue to get overwhelmed in a small city called Dunkirk. And it's in this place that they were trying to move troops out of France safely to Britain, but the German um, Air Force continues to uh, fight planes, continue to bomb uh, boats, and over and over again, the situation becomes more and more hopeless. As the British Army continues to lose naval boat after naval boat after naval boat, and men are lined up wanting to get across this small little channel over to England, and it's not working. Finally, Winston Churchill puts out a call to the civilians and says, we've got 300,000 of our men. They're dropping like flies, essentially. We need your help. And a large fleet of civilians grab every single boat that they have, even small 18-foot boats, to go across the channel to go and rescue these men. And as they're relaying out the mission and what they're about ready to go do, there's a British officer that begins to talk to the men and the civilians, talking about how we will not allow Germany to continue the path forward. We will defeat and go against Germany, no matter what happens, but believing that victory is within hand. Victory is in front of us. And he closed the message that we believe we will take on the Germans, we will win against the Germans, we will go and carry out this mission of rescuing 300,000 soldiers. And he closed by saying this, but if not, but if not, and if anybody that knows their scripture, you would know what he was referencing to. What he's referencing to is the story of, of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they face the fiery furnace as King Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down to my idols, worship foreign gods, that you should do this. And they said, no. They said, no. In Daniel chapter 3, 
He says this, if it be so, our God whom we serve will be able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. But if not, the quiet confidence that we believe God will rescue us, but even if God doesn't, we're not going to worship. The quiet confidence that this British soldier's uh, commanding officer says to the civilians, we're going to go and rescue our men, and we're going to do this successfully. But if not, we're still going to go. We're still going to go, because we've got to go and rescue these men. If you don't know the story, the story is they commanded that huge fleet, and they rescued 300,000 soldiers across that small channel. If you've never seen the movie Dunkirk, this is the story of that situation. I want to encourage you to, to watch it, to look at it, to learn from it, to ask the question like, do I live that way? Do I live my life with the perspective of, but if not? I don't know about you, but when I hear that story and those types of stories, it's inspiring, isn't it? Isn't it an inspiring message? And even though I want to live that way, the question that has to be asked is when, when tragedy, when trauma, when things happen, do I still live that way? Or do I allow the things that are broken in this world, either the things that I've caused or that other people have caused, do I allow that to change the trajectory of my story and my faith? Today we're going to take a look at David as we wrap up his life and the first thing I want you to notice is all the triumphs of David, all the amazing things that David experienced through God. And we talked about some of those in this sermon series, that God called David a man after God's own heart, that he was a man that cared about making God's name famous. He was after God's reputation and God's glory. That's what he wanted the world to see through his life, and he stayed focused on that for a time being. In addition, God anointed king of Israel when he was a boy. He defeated Goliath. We just sung a song about seeing the giants fall. And all of us have giants in our lives that, that God wants to see fall if we're willing to Kaddish Hashem, if we're willing to honor God's name and how we live and how we walk. David becomes king of Judah and the king of the United Twelve Tribes of Israel. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He even plans for the temple. He added music to the daily liturgy and organized a service schedule for the Levites and the priests. And we talked about how David's life was a life of worship in the midst of desert. And I'm really excited because in two weeks we're going to start a new sermon series called Wired for Worship. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things in the Bible, but we're going to learn a lot from David about why do we sing? Why do we come here on Sunday morning? Why do we come here and gather together and sing? Why is that important? The scripture tells us why it's important. It's not just like, well, it's just a part of the service. We check it off. No, it is important. And not only is it important, but how we enter into this place is actually important. So we're going to talk about it, and we're going to, be, we're going to really lean on David to look at some of the things that David talked about in regards to worship. But not only was there a lot of triumphs with David, we learned last week the tragic story of who? David and who? Say it louder. Bathsheba. That tragic situation. And what we're going to see from this next list is that that tragic situation like continued a domino effect of more tragedy in David's life. Not just triumphs, which we tend to glorify and idolize a little bit in regards to David, but no one ever talks about the second half of David's life, which is a, a struggle. 
God, uh, commit, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He arranges the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David confessed and repented his sin, and God forgave him. But consequence, David's child dies. Tragic. More tragedy. David failed to discipline his sons. His son, Amnon, uh, committed the sin of rape and incest and was murdered by David's son, Absalom. We got David's son, Absalom, who leads a rebellion to usurp David's throne. And David's beloved son, Absalom, was eventually murdered in the midst of all that. And David's throne was restored. It was a bitter victory for a heartbroken father. More tragedy. And then lastly, David ignores Joab's advice of taking a census. And the result is a deadly plague, which infects all the people. And then David wanted to build Yahweh a house in Jerusalem. God told David that he could not build the temple because he was a man of blood. A lot of tragedy. A lot of triumph, but a lot of tragedy, which shows us a couple things, at least in the, in the, in the weeds. It shows us that, that God, even though he forgave David and loved David, that the reality is, is David had to live with the consequences of his sin. That God is a God that loves us and that forgives us, is quick to forgive, quick to restore, but he doesn't take away the consequences of sin. And I know that in our temporal small time here on earth, that for me, when I look at the tragedies in my life, when I look at the things either that I've caused, or maybe it's not something that I've caused, it's just sin or tragedy that's taken place in my life because of someone else's choices. And maybe it's not even someone else's choices. Maybe it's just the fact of the brokenness of the world that we live in as our bodies break down on us. And you get that diagnosis that you have cancer. Or that someone's harmed you or harmed your family because of the choices that they've made. Or you're harming yourself or your family because of the choices you made. That in the midst of the tragedy, the first cry to God is to say, God, remove it all. Would you remove it all? And sometimes he does that, right? But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. And in the midst of the tragedies that we face, sometimes we can say, God, where are you? What are you doing? And we can feel like he's gone and that he's distant and that he's not at work. And what if I told you, what if I told you that even though we cry out and say, God, would you remove this? Would you remove this situation? That sometimes he doesn't and that actually sometimes he's doing something even greater than that? Well, how could it be greater? Maybe you just remove this things would go well for me. It'd be better. Maybe God does something greater. What is that? What is this something better or greater that he actually does or that he's actually doing? We near the end of David's life in 1 Kings chapter 2. And at the end of David's life, it says this, that when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his, what's it say up there? His promise to me. If you got your Bible, underline that. If you're in the Bible app, highlight it. He would keep his promise to me. 
If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and their soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. What is this promise? What is David referring to? What is he even talking about? The promise is found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathanael comes to David as he hears from the Lord and talks to David about this promise. And there's this dialogue in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved from all, with all the Israelites, did I ever have to say to any of the rulers when I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over all my people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they can know can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you in your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Underline that in your Bible, verse 12. That I will raise up offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. What is this kingdom? He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne for his kingdom forever. Highlight that one. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod yielded with men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Verse 15, here it is. But my love will never be taken away from him as I take it, took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported David all the words of this entire revelation. Who is this house? Who is this king? What is this kingdom that will last forever? For those of you who know your Bibles, who is this king? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, and his house is his church, his people. You see, God promised to David that in spite of the triumphs, in spite of the tragedy, in spite of all the things that are going to take a place, I'm going to raise up a king that will be an eternal king, and a house will be an eternal house, and I will fulfill the promise that I've given you and to all your children from this moment forward. I will fulfill it. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, as Mary gets word that she's pregnant, and she's like, I'm not pregnant. How can I be pregnant? I'm a virgin. How's this working? The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus, and he'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father. What's it say up there? David. There it is. The promise that was talked about a thousand years before Jesus. It's here, Mary. 
And you're the one that's been chosen. You're the one that's been chosen to partner with God. He's going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. There's the promise. There it is. That Jesus is going to come and fulfill the promise in spite of the tragedy. God, in spite of the tragedy, fulfills his promise. And then in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew writes, and he's writing to Jewish Christians, Jews, to help them understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one that they've been waiting for. And he starts by saying, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for by giving you all the genealogy, clear from the beginning where Jesus comes from. Matthew chapter 1. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of, there it is again, the son of David. There it is again. He comes from David, just like we promised, the son of Abraham. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We know who that name is. We said it earlier, the name, what's her name? Bathsheba. And it's interesting that, that Matthew quote, writes down other Names of women of where Jesus has come from, even prostitutes. He names them, but he doesn't name Bathsheba's name. Why? Lots of different conversation. Why? At the very least, I think that there's a certain amount of embarrassment. Shame. That this is where Jesus comes from. That the promise is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in the midst of this is messy. This is really messy. This is really broken, isn't it? That Jesus would come from the, the line of David, and you would think it's the line of David where it's amazing, and it's perfect, and it's holy, and it's just amazing. It's like, no, it's actually coming from brokenness. It's actually coming from the mess. That God actually chooses to bring Jesus to come to us in the midst of a messy family. He comes in the midst of our mess. That even in our mess, that doesn't stop Jesus from moving his kingdom forward. That it doesn't keep from fulfilling the promises that he said that he would fulfill. That Jesus comes in the midst of those messes. And he fulfills those promises. And that he would do what he actually said he would do. Even in the midst of my sin. Even in the midst of the sin of others. Even in the midst of the tragedy of the broken world that we live in. Jesus still comes and fulfills his promises. And if you don't know this, for me, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? In the midst of your mess. In the midst of your sin. Jesus is still bringing about his purposes and his promises. And so with that, you can look at it from a couple different perspectives. In spite of David's tragedies, in spite of his failures, God, Jesus continues to fulfill his promises even in the messiness. And, and we can look at that and then go, okay, well then, it doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't really matter what I do. God just is going to bring about his purposes anyways. And my question for you is this, is if that's the mindset or if that's the heart, it doesn't really matter. Do you realize that you are removing yourself from the goodness that God has for you in this life and in the life to come? And why would you not want to experience that? Why would you not 
respond in awe and reverence and humility that this is the God that we serve, that in spite of, of me, he moves forward and is able to bring out his purposes in spite of me. We can say, oh, it doesn't really matter, or we can actually respond with humility. We can respond in awe. We can respond in reverence. We can respond in awestruckness that this is the God that we love and that we serve, that he moves the story forward in spite of me. That he brings about goodness in the midst of my brokenness. It doesn't give me a liberty to just take his love for granted, but should propel me to love and to worship more, to surrender more, to walk obediently more, not haphazardly. Rick Warren puts it this way, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. I love that. David was a broken tree. Yes, a man after God's own heart, but a broken tree. And God brought Jesus out of David's brokenness. Would we be a people that live in such a way that circumvent the enemy's strategy of convincing us that the world is worth living for instead of Jesus? Would we be willing to say, no, the world is not what I live for. The enemy is not what I live for, but instead I'm going to live with an anxious or a peaceful life. A peaceful life, not an anxious life, because God is carrying out his purposes. And God will continue to remain faithful to his, his promises and that I can live a life of, of peacefulness. I can live my life with hope for the future. Because even though things are tragic, even though sin seems to be abounding, even though trauma takes place, even though brokenness is taking place, God continues to fulfill his promises in spite of the world that I live in. What would it look like if we lived this way? If we lived believing that God is going to fulfill all of his promises and that I don't have to live without hope, I don't have to live with anxiousness, I don't have to live, continue to make more messes after more messes after more messes, but God would continue to move his mission forward in spite of me and the brokenness of the world that we live in. The profound, peaceful depth of obedience in the present with a hopeful excitement and expectation of the future. What if we live that way? What if we live that way? Would you be willing to trust the story that God is telling for your life, that he's telling a good story even though it's hard, even though it's broken, even though there's trauma? What would happen if we trusted Jesus with all of what he's given to us. I just want you to look at 10 statements that Jesus says to us this morning. And maybe one of these statements is like your statement. It's like, that's the one I have to lean into. That's the promise that, that I need to hold on to. What would it look like for you to live differently? First one, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Some of you are here and you understand that statement at a deep level. You are weary. Life is heavy. And Jesus says, just come to me and you're going to find peace. You're going to find rest. What would it look like if you trust that promise from Jesus this morning? That you would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually take Jesus at his word and I'm going to come to him. Then when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I'm not going to do is open up my phone and look at how the world's falling apart or see what's going on that I've missed. 
and become anxious about what I've missed. But instead, you woke up every single morning and you said, I'm going to go to God's word. I'm going to hear from him this morning. Because he's going to give me rest from my anxious heart, from my anxious spirit. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Not with God. All things are, are possible with God. What is that situation that you think is impossible? That impossible mountain that stands in front of you and you go, it can't be moved. And you would say, no, I believe. I believe, God. Would you give me hope for the first time? Your marriage, you say, my marriage is an impossible wreck. It can't be redeemed. It can't be restored. Maybe you begin to hope maybe for the first time again for your marriage as you choose to put Jesus at the front and center of it. That you believe that God can bring out goodness in the midst of the tragedy that you face. Number three, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Some of you are wavering. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I want to stand firm. And your love is growing cold. And Jesus whispers, I will fulfill my promises. Will you stand firm? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? I've told you these things so that in you, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? When you're overwhelmed, do you live with the peace that God's overcome the world? Or do you allow the overwhelming nature of your spirit and your heart and your emotions to overtake you and respond out of that? Or do you respond out of faith and belief and trust? Therefore, I will tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That impossible prayer, that impossible mountain. Would you start praying it maybe? Trusting the promises of Jesus. You are already clean because of the world I've spoken, because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. What does it mean to be steadfast? To remain. That God is going to fulfill his promises. Number seven. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. For some of us, it's the worry about life. It's the worry, will I have enough? Will I have enough food? Will I have enough shelter? Will I have enough whatever the case may be? And Jesus says, if you just trust me and seek me and my kingdom and all these things in your time, in your finances, in regards to the kingdom, in regards to all of life, will you seek these things first knowing that God will take care of you? What promise do you have to hold on to this morning? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stir away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Do you really believe that you're more valuable than the sparrows and the birds? Or do you believe what the enemy tells you, that you're not valuable, you're not worth saving, you're not worth forgiving, you're not worth blessing? What promises do you need to hold on to this morning? Everything is possible for the one who believes Are you willing to begin to have faith and believe? And all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? That God will fulfill his promises in spite of the tragedy, trauma, the sin, the brokenness that you find yourself in. David's story is a story of all the triumphs and all the tragedies. God still brings about his promises and fulfills them. And that's good news. It's good news for you and me. Would you be willing to be obedient to what God's calling you to do? I love this quote. Every command of God is built upon a promise from God. You ever think about that? Command of God is tied to a promise of God. Every divine call to action, obedience, is at the same time a divine summons to trust in God's promises, which is actually faith. 
The promises of God are commands in disguise and vice versa. God commands what he commands because he promises. After the exodus, God promised Israel that uh, it would rain bread from heaven every day except the Sabbath. God therefore commanded Israel not to gather more than their daily ration except on Friday. God's promise was intrinsically linked with a prohibition. Conversely, trusting God's promise would mean obedience to his commands. Disbelief always shows up as an act of disobedience. Since every promise carries with it a command, every time we disobey God, it's because we are not trusting in his promises. So what would it look like if you said, I'm going to start trusting God with these promises and learning how to walk out obedience? What would your life look like? And how would your life be a testimony to the rest of the world about God's goodness Believing, How can you have peace in the midst of the thing that you're facing? Because I know God's going to fulfill his promise in my life or in the life to come. That God always does what he says he's going to do. And so I don't have to live with anxiousness, with fret, with fear, with worry. God's got me. God's got you. And so we begin the process of trusting Jesus with everything that we have. We trust him with our salvation. We trust him with our relationships. We trust him in the midst of conflict. We trust him in the midst of, of tragedy. We trust him in the midst of our time, our, our finances. We trust him with everything. And so what next step is Jesus inviting you into this morning where he's saying, would you trust me? Would you trust the promises? Would you be able to walk in step with me knowing that I'm going to work out all things for good. Yes, come to me. Confess and repent your sin. Because it's what makes you whole and brings peace between you and me and others. But understand, like, you won't be defined by your tragedy. You won't be defined by your sin. You'll be defined by how I speak over you, Jesus says. And that I will bring about my purposes and my promises in spite of the broken, brokenness you find yourself in. What would it look like if we trusted Jesus with everything that we have? And I know for all of you, there's probably one thing. There's one thing that you go, I don't know if I really want to trust Jesus with this thing. I don't know if I'm really going to give that over to him. I know I need to, but I don't know if I can or if I will. As we get ready to go to the Lord's Supper and we have communion, would you talk to Jesus about that one thing? What is the promise of God? that you've got to give over to him and begin to trust him with. Joe said it earlier. Maybe it's lordship, salvation, baptism. For some of you, maybe it's relationships. Maybe you've, you've gone to a place where you're isolated and you don't have real relationship because you've been wounded in church relationships. And Jesus is saying, now I need you to trust again. I need you to lean in again. Maybe God's telling you that he needs to be Lord of everything in your life, even your time. You need to trust him with it. Whatever that one thing is, that relationship that maybe is broken, and you long for restoration, maybe that's what you need to be praying for. Whatever your one thing is that God's asking you to trust him in the promises of his word, would you talk to Jesus about that this morning? As we get ready to go to communion and have a meal with him, spend some time praying this morning.